This is Simply Meditation, an offering of Center for Self-Care, and your mindful coach, that's me, Mark Balser. Each week at 7.15 p.m. on Wednesday, we have an in-person guided meditation and short teaching at Balanced for Life Yoga in Devon, Pennsylvania. Feel free to join us there or listen each week to our intro and guided practice or standalone guided practice. If you'd like to learn more, visit me at www.center4selfcare.com or email me at mark at centerforselfcare.com. Thank you and enjoy. So the second noble truth is there's a cause of suffering and I get the subtle art of not giving a fuck, which is an amazing book. Uh, really like Mark Manson. Oh, it, it's, it's, he gets it. Chapter two is called happiness is a problem. <laughs> uh, because I think most people come into that subtle art of not giving a fuck and think, oh, this is me not caring as much. I'm almost like, how do I get to indifference? Mm-hmm. How do I ignore these things that are bothering me? And this book is not about that at all. This book is about caring deeply and then maybe not giving a fuck about the outcome or not giving a fuck more so about what people think of what you're doing. Because you quit your new job to start a new company and people are going to be skeptical. That's just natural and normal. But that's not the thing that should drive you, that perception of other people. So he tells the story of the Buddha, which you've heard before in one way or another, but I think he tells it really elegantly. About 2,500 years ago, in the Himalayan foothills of present-day Nepal, there lived in a great palace a king who was going to have a son. For this son, the king had a particularly grand idea. He would make the child's life perfect. The child would never know a moment of suffering, every need, every desire. They'd all be accounted for at all times. The king built high walls around the palace that prevented the prince from knowing the outside world. He spoiled the child, lavishing him with food and gifts, surrounding him with servants who catered to his every whim. And just as planned, the child grew up ignorant of the routine cruelties of human existence. All of the prince's childhood went on like this, but despite the endless luxury and opulence, the prince became kind of a pissed-off young man. Soon every experience felt like emptiness and valueless. The problem was that no matter what his father gave him, it never seemed enough, never meant anything. So late one night, the prince snuck out of the palace to see what was behind its walls. He had a servant drive him, and what he saw horrified him. As he went through the village, for the first time in his life, the prince saw human suffering. He saw sick people, old people, homeless people, and even people dying. The prince returned to the palace and found himself in a sort of existential crisis. Not knowing how to process what he'd seen, he got all emo, which is a word I don't really know what it means, 
about everything and complained a lot. And as is so typical of young men, the prince ended up blaming his father for the very things his father had tried to do for him. It was the riches, the prince thought, that had made him so miserable, that had made life seem so meaningless. So he decided to run away. But the prince was more like his father than he knew. He had grand ideas as well. He wouldn't just run away. He would give up his royalty, his family, and all of his possessions and live in the streets, sleeping in dirt like an animal. There he would starve himself, torture himself, and beg for scraps of food from strangers for the rest of his life. Now keep in mind, he's 29 years old at this point, and he has a wife and kids. So leaving aside the abandonment issues that he left behind, uh, he's found a different way to find happiness. And that's usually where the story pretty much pauses, and you fast forward to Buddha becoming enlightened. But, you know, as we talked about last week with there is suffering, like that's suffering, but it's not the only form of suffering. The next night, the prince snuck out of the palace again, this time never to return. For years, he lived as a bum, a discarded and forgotten remnant of society. The dog shit caked to the bottom of the social totem pole. And as planned, the prince suffered greatly. He suffered through disease, hunger, pain, loneliness, and decay. He confronted the brink of death itself, often limited to eating a single nut each day. A few years went by, then a few more, and then nothing happened. The prince began to notice that this life of suffering wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. It wasn't bringing him the insight he had desired. It wasn't revealing any deeper mystery of the world or its ultimate purpose. In fact, the prince came to know what the rest of us have always kind of known, that suffering totally sucks. <laughs> and it's not necessarily that meaningful either. As with being rich, there's no value in suffering when it's done without purpose. And soon the prince came to the conclusion that his grand idea, like his father's, was in fact a fucking terrible idea, and he should probably go do something else instead. This is where we get back to his enlightenment. Totally confused, the prince cleaned himself up and went and found a big tree near a river. He decided that he would sit under that tree and not get up until he came up with another grand idea. As the legend goes, the confused prince sat under that tree for 49 days. We won't delve, delve into the biological viability of sitting in the same spot for 49 days, but let's just say that in time the prince came to a number of profound realizations. One of the realizations was this, that life itself is a form of suffering. The rich suffer because of their riches. The poor suffer because of their poverty. People without a family suffer because they have no family, and people with a family suffer because of that family. People who pursue worldly pleasures suffer because of their worldly pleasures. People who abstain from worldly pleasures suffer because of their abstention. This isn't to say that all suffering is equal. Some suffering is certainly more painful than other suffering, but we all must suffer nonetheless. Years later, the prince would build his own philosophy and share it with the world. 
and this would be its first and central tenet, that pain and loss are inevitable, and we should let go of trying to resist them, the third noble truth. The prince would later become known as the Buddha, and in case you haven't heard of him, he's kind of a big deal. There's a premise that underlies a lot of our assumptions and beliefs. This pre premise is that happiness is algorithmic, that it can be worked for and earned and achieved as if it were getting accepted to law school or building a really complicated Lego set. If I achieve X, then I can be happy. If I look like Y, then I can be happy. If I can be with a person like Z, then I can be happy. This premise, though, is the problem. Happiness is not a solvable equation. Dissatisfaction and unease are inherent parts of human nature, and as we'll see, necessary components to creating consistent happiness. So I think I'll stop there because he moves on to a imagination, a fantasy of a superhero that he calls the disappointment panda. He wants to he wants to create a superhero that just shows up on the scene and basically like Debbie Downer in Saturday Night Live says everything's a mess. Will you just read the last paragraph again? Absolutely. Happiness. Yeah. Happiness is not a solvable equation. Dissatisfaction and unease are inherent parts of human nature. And as we'll see, necessary components to creating consistent happiness. Our second noble truth, there is a cause of suffering. It's not about the pain and loss that we experience. There's the story of the second arrow, another story that the Buddha told of a man who got shot with an arrow and was going to die. It was a poison arrow. And they brought the doctor over, and the guy said, whoa, 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 who is this doctor? What's his background? What caste is he from? Uh, what's his training? Uh, and, of course, this process of asking all these questions, he died. And we kind of do that where we have reaction to <laughs> the trials and tribulations of our lives of asking why and looking to assign blame or reason to whatever's going on instead of trying to heal. My brother uh, tells this wonderful uh, kind of metaphor, simile, I don't know what it is, that uh, when your house is burning down and you're running out of the house and you see a man running away, you don't chase after the man who set your house on fire. You try to put your fire out so your house doesn't disappear. And so that's the suffering we're talking about, that second arrow that we've received a wound, but then we apply our mental calculations to it, our, our wanting or our aversion. Um, so the kind of primary causes of suffering in this model, uh, Buddha calls them the three poisons, grasping, aversion, and delusion. So it's, I want this good stuff. I don't want this bad stuff. And can I create a fantasy or an imagination of how things should be? except for the fact that it's never going to be the way it actually is. So we create an environment of doubt and, uh, and uncertainty. So, you know, with the second arrow, I got dumped. I got fired from my job, whatever it might be. And the second arrow is 
no one will ever love me, or I'm unemployable, that kind of thing, um, which is really just a kind of a mental formation. It's not really what's happening in that moment. It's our assessment of that. Projection. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely projection. We've been sitting with discomfort and suffering over the last couple of weeks. And uh, why not try to sit a little bit more? <laughs> those, uh, those three poisons, grasping and aversion and delusion, uh, show up in our lives. I was practicing over the weekend, and I recognized that my weekends are characterized by grasping. I want pleasure and leisure and fun. And I'm just fighting for it the whole time. And of course, I'm probably doing it by driving kids around from place to place so they can do as many activities as possible, you know, stopping as wah-wah a hundred times so I can take advantage of Sitopia. Uh, and so I'm like wanting, wanting, collecting. And then I show up for the week and now it turns into aversion. Mm-hmm. I, 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 don't, I don't want these kids to be talking the whole time. And so, you know, it's very situational that we might have our our poison, but depending on circumstances, uh, those change around a little bit. On an existential long-term basis, I think I'm a confusion person. The, the doubting mind and the uncertainty will eat me up as I ruminate and think about all the different things. And so we can work with that in practice because they're actually three of the five kind of challenges that we face in meditation practice called the five hindrances. Um, So the five hindrances are essentially noticing pleasant sensation and wanting that to continue. So we hear a beautiful bird in the background and we want to hear that bird, listen to it. And then a fire truck goes by. We don't want that. We got our aversion. And then the fantasies that we kind of play out in our mind are that last piece of delusion. The other two hindrances we can look at as well because they're they're kind of uh, opposite sides of the same coin. Restlessness. So, I, you know, I can't sit still. I'm fidgety. I can't stop thinking. And drowsiness. <laughs> sloth, or, sloth and torpor that we're just falling asleep. And that might be because our body says to fall asleep. But it also can be because we're trying to avoid being with, with our experience. So the practice I thought we could do tonight is a naming practice. So we're going to give our minds a job. Uh, and this naming will be related to what arises for us. Any thoughts or feelings, you feel your bum ankle, and you will label it. Labeling it at first pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And, you know, we can come back to our breath here and there, but simply that process of naming it often brings us back to the present moment and keeps us from going into that ruminating imagining, thinking, mind. So pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. We can follow the thought, we can come back to our breath, whatever it might be. And we'll practice that way for a while. And then we'll transition our naming to those three poisons, grasping, aversion, and delusion. Is whatever arising for me something that I I want more of? (laughs) Is that me grasping? So it might be planning. It might be regretting, you know, that's kind of an aversion from the, from the past. Or is it me kind of experiencing that doubt or uncertainty of human experience? 
So I'll guide us through that practice, um, coming back to the breath and making sure you take care of yourself as we, as we do this. So finding a posture with a stable balance, you might let your knees swing out a bit to create a steady base, letting your arms rest, your hands in your lap or on your thighs. Drawing the breath into the body. Coming into this moment. Sensing how the body might settle and slow. Bringing some intention to the in-breath and the out-breath. Finding a comfortable rhythm. Smoothing out the inhale and the exhale. guiding us to here and now. You might balance out the in-breath and out-breath by silently counting. Breathing in, two, three, four, and breathing out, two, three, four. Inhaling and exhaling. Inhaling and exhaling. Noticing how the breath moves through your body, perhaps feeling the muscles of the belly and abdomen expand and contract, moving into the area of the chest and the shoulders, and dropping back into the belly again. Breathing in and out. Staying with the breath for these first few minutes.
Noting the quality of the breath, sensing how it may have stabilized and slowed, or perhaps not. Feeling deeply into the body, feeling the movement of each breath. As you're ready, releasing any control of the breath, returning to a natural breath that doesn't take any effort on your part, holding the awareness here, feeling without controlling. breath invites you to come back to it again and again. And resting in presence, being aware of the breath, thoughts will come up. Feelings, memories, sensations. As they arise, let yourself notice them, recognizing their quality. You might have a thought of something you're excited about in the future, and you might just label it pleasant. And see what happens. Thought might grow or fade away. With the breath as a guide, simply await the next arising. Labeling whatever comes up as pleasant or unpleasant, or perhaps neutral. So thought of an errand you might need to run could be neutral. A worry about a responsibility could be unpleasant. Treating whatever arises equally, giving it a name, and seeing how it evolves.
Some of these mental formations can be quite mundane. Perhaps a jingle from a TV show or commercial. Labeling it. Just allowing whatever arises to arise. Pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. These labels, in a sense, are a representation of our first reaction, our first judgment of our experience. I like this, I don't like this, I don't really care. So I'd invite you now to move to that second arrow the questions that unfold as we explore what arises. So you might notice a thought and see what that thought's about. Am I grasping? Am I striving? What does this thought represent? And you can label it as such or in any way that feels right. Perhaps noticing that you're trying to make things a certain way. Or that you're resisting or denying the situation that's in your mind. Is it something you're avoiding? Is there a part of you that's unsure what to do about these questions? So as your narrative or story unfolds, just give it a name, grasping, aversion, delusion, or whatever labels make sense for you.
might be that we bring to mind a child or a parent. Exploring our wishes for them, how we wish for them to be happy, wish that for them to not experience sorrow. What are we holding on to with those thoughts? wanting or not wanting. And also recognizing these as simply thoughts. They may be true or real, or they may not. So we might bring a deep discernment to the intimacy we build. Recognizing when we're holding tight. Seeing if we can let go. Resting in how things are in this moment. Seeing this grasping and aversion and delusion for what they are. Knowing that we can let go a bit. As we move to close our practice, you might reflect on any insights, anything that you notice in practice, perhaps your inclination for one of the poisons, perhaps a different perspective you might have brought to something that came up. Feeling back into the breath and the body.
and taking one final minute to rest in awareness.